This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Alternate realities exist. Reality is defined by perception. So whatever or whomever controls perception controls reality. No, you didn't accidentally tune in to the Joe Rogan experience. This is who is. I want to talk about a guy in charge of a portal through which billions of people filter the reality every day. Yeah, it's a real change for a for-profit company to be governing all of global speech, right? Whatever they decide is what is allowed. If they say it's okay for the generals in Myanmar to, to, to incite you know, a genocide, then, then it goes. And if they say it's not okay for that to happen, then it doesn't happen. And it has nothing to do with anyone. No one has any oversight of the U.S. government, the, the people who are members of Facebook, right? The citizens who participate in Facebook have no say in that. I remember when my biggest concern about Facebook was like, if the girl I had a crush on in math class was going to poke me back. Now we have to worry about Facebook controlling global free speech? Beyond the power of the company, power within Facebook is consolidated in the hands of one man. It's really, honestly, um, Mark Zuckerberg himself. I mean, there, he has said, I make these important decisions myself, and he has claimed that power for himself. And it's, it's a kind of power that, like, honestly... I don't even know that anyone has ever in history had that kind of power. I don't know if the U.S. president has had that kind of power. I don't know that, you know, Caesar had that power when he was ruling the Roman Empire. This ability to decide at any time what speech is allowed in any part of the globe is an unbelievable amount of power. Zuckerberg's main properties, Facebook and Instagram, are portals through which billions of users experience the world. Filters between people and reality, which alter perception of everything, from human friendship to personal success to our understanding of the way the world works. And yeah, I see the irony. I work for a company, now this, that probably wouldn't exist without Facebook. I have a career because of the media empire built by Mark Zuckerberg. But there's more. The data collected by Facebook is a trove of information, voluntarily divulged, that presents a pretty complete and alarmingly accurate picture of those who use it. And more people use it than Christianity has adherents. Billions of people. Facebook may know more about you than you know about yourself, which is true even if you're not on the social network or one of its other platforms. Facebook and all of this data are largely in the hands of one man. So, who is Mark Zuckerberg? I'm Sean Morrow, and this is Who Is? The podcast from Now This, where we examine power by looking at the stories of people who have it. To quote a great thinker, this guy, Billy, I went to college with, Mark Zuckerberg's biopic came out before Facebook was used repeatedly to undermine democracy worldwide. You saw on the social network, right? We all get Mark Zuckerberg's origin story. 
we watched his rise and already got a movie of it. Upper middle class kid goes to Harvard, starts a business, drops out. Trent Reznor buys a synthesizer. I'm not going to get into whether or not he stole the idea from someone else or if it's all about getting revenge on a girl that was mean to him. That doesn't matter now. But I am interested in what the idea was in the first place. So here's Zuckerberg at 20 years old in 2005 when Facebook is 15 months old. It's from an amateur interview at then Facebook headquarters. Zuckerberg is on a couch in basketball shorts, his legs folded underneath him, drinking out of a red solo cup. There are literally Pulp Fiction and Scarface posters in the background. So I think Facebook is an online directory for colleges, and I mean, it's kind of interactive. So if I want to look you up or get information about you, I just go to the Facebook and type in your name, and it brings me up like hopefully all the information I'd care to know about you, or like a good amount of the information I'd want to know about you. A few months later, he told a Harvard computer science class in a guest lecture how he saw the future of the network. Well, like imagine like what happens if like one day you just like type in anyone's name and get some information about them. And like, that'd be kind of cool, right? <laughs> the Harvard Crimson reported on the early platform in 2004, quote, while Zuckerberg promised the Facebook.com would boast new features by the end of the week, he said that he did not create the website with the intention of generating revenue, end quote. Whether Mark Zuckerberg intended it or not, he was creating one of the most valuable companies in the history of companies. But what was social media like in 2004 before, like, we had iPhones? I spoke with Julia Angwin, who you heard at the top of the episode. She's a pretty legendary investigative journalist focusing on tech. Today, she's the founder and editor-in-chief of The Markup. I first learned about Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg probably um, when I was covering MySpace, um, one of the first big social networking websites. MySpace was actually bigger than Facebook, and it was really Facebook trying to catch up with MySpace in terms of popularity. Mark Zuckerberg didn't invent social networks or social media. They already existed when Facebook came out. But Facebook was different. Facebook was an elite um, platform. Basically, it was only restricted to people in the Ivy Leagues. So college students in Ivy League universities joined it, and it was a way for them to network with each other. Facebook was a safe space to share information because that information was being shared with a limited number of people. And if you were on it, you knew who those people were. The future elite who would run the world, like Jared Kushner and all his friends. So early on, um, Facebook was unique in requiring real identities, and it required people to basically authenticate themselves. Because it started with the Ivy Leagues, you kind of had to prove you were an Ivy Leaguer. So you had to join with your verified email address from your university. And so from the beginning, it was always all about proving you were really who you were. MySpace, its biggest rival, and it was bigger than them at that time, was all about anonymity. Create your own identity, be who you want to be, live out your dreams. And people created all sorts of personas for themselves, fake names, etc. And so MySpace was sort of like positioning itself as like the freedom, you know, and, and Facebook was very restrictive. And it was really surprising to me, actually, that this identity version won out. Because honestly, I think Americans tend to be a little bit anti-authoritarian generally, and not wanting to always be forced into revealing 
their identity and liking the idea of sort of creating any kind of identity for themselves they wanted. An important hidden bonus of real identities? Real information. Here's Zuckerberg in 2006 in a television interview. People could only see people from their local college and friends outside. Mm -hmm. That made it so people were comfortable sharing information that they probably wouldn't otherwise, which made it useful in the long term for people to look up information about other people on the site. Facebook did something important. They made people feel comfortable in putting their personal information into the platform. It was something Zuckerberg realized super early on. He explained it back in that Solo Cup interview I mentioned earlier. So um, I realized that because I didn't have people's information like a school would in making a Facebook, I needed to make it interesting enough so that people would want to use the site and want to like put their information up or else it wouldn't be useful for other people and therefore it wouldn't grow. Mark Zuckerberg didn't major in computer science or whatever. He studied psychology, which makes sense because Facebook didn't steal anything. It convinced users to give away all of their personal information willingly for free. He's very invested in the word hacker, right? I think the, the Facebook is on one hacker way and they have like a hacker manifesto on the wall and they, they, they call themselves hackers. And hackers are, you know, it's a term from like the early computing era. And it really, it's, it's really about like people who tried to make the technology work outside the box, outside the way it was intended to work. And a huge amount of that honestly was collecting data you weren't supposed to have. <laughs> and so from the beginning, I would just say they've always been kind of a rogue data collection operation. Whether that was something that you know, he thought would be at this scale or monetize it this way. I doubt it. But he knew from the beginning the information was power. Leaked instant messenger logs from 2004 show that access to data was always important to Zuckerberg. Here, let me read. Zuckerberg says, yeah, so if you ever need info about anyone at Harvard, just ask. I have over 4,000 emails, pictures, addresses, screen names. His friend responds, what? How'd you manage that one? Zuckerberg replies, people just submitted it. I don't know why. They trust me, dumb fucks. Zuckerberg realized that if he wanted to grow, he'd have to expand from just the dumb fucks at Harvard and other Ivy League schools to dumb fucks everywhere. He turned out to be a really ambitious person, right? There's a, a world in which he could have just stayed and, and it would have been a really interesting university service for elite people and maybe he would have made a lot of money on advertising, you know, BMWs to the future, you know, elites of America. But instead, he really wanted to get big and he wanted to get big fast. So he dropped out of Harvard and moved to California and um, started to scale up. And the way to get big fast was to open up the site and to beat the other social networking sites that were in competition at that time. There were actually about a dozen or so that were all trying to grab this market. Zuckerberg told an audience at Stanford in 2005 he wanted to transcend being a website and be a utility, like power or water or the internet itself. Because we're not trying to create something that people use for like a specific purpose. This is a utility that people can use to just find relevant information socially to them. And I, I tried to make something that people could kind of look up extensively just random things about random people and try to get everyone to be on there and a lot of relevant information to be on there. So the fact that people can come back every day for different purposes and kind of keep a browser open on their computer maybe 
and just go and type in someone's name and find information about them is the type of use that we aimed to tune this application towards. In 2005, Mark Zuckerberg already knew he wanted users to always have his platform open, to be a constant and necessary part of everyone's lives, while also revealing everyone's lives, where all these random things about random people could be stored. It was also 2005 that Facebook debuted something that I personally consider literally paradigm shifting, the reality creating stuff I talked about earlier, the news feed. Here's Julia Anglin. So people who use Facebook now probably don't even remember a time before there was a news feed, but there was a time <laughs> on all of these social platforms. Actually, what you were supposed to do was just go to your friends pages every day and check what they had added. And you would actually spend all your time going to all your different friends, different little pages and seeing what they had done. I mean, it seems preposterous now, but he was the one who came up with the idea of building this feed so you could just see a stream of the updates that your friends had made on your own page. And that was the revolution, right? That changed social networking from something kind of fun, but not very easy to use to a completely mainstream news service that essentially has supplanted the news industry. Facebook users pushed back against newsfeed. They thought the constant stream of information was too much of an invasion of privacy. It was broadcasting things like you friending a new person or making a wall post to everyone. At the time, a protesting college student told the New York Times, quote, it's like someone peeking in on my conversations. People now know exactly when you became friends with somebody. When you hook up with somebody is now documented before it took some extra effort, end quote. At the time, Zuckerberg responded to the complaints in a Facebook note titled, Calm down. Breathe. We hear you. But Facebook didn't really change anything. They just apologized. That seemingly small change was one of the first big steps towards today's constant rush of information everywhere. For it to really work, though, the social network needed to have lots of content on it. There needed to be something to look at. And the content is you. You and all of your family and friends. So you can go to a friend or anyone's profile and see not only pictures that they've taken, but other pictures that people have taken of them. And I guess the thought process behind this was, how do we fill out the network in order to make something that is most universally useful? So I guess in doing so, we realized that maybe 10% of people would upload photos. And I mean, I guess we've had this out for about a week now, and at the schools that we've rolled it out, we're currently testing it. So we're only at like 30% of the schools so far. I think about 10 or 15% of the people who have this feature have uploaded photos, but more than 40% of the people on the network have photos taken of them. Remember, this was also a time when users didn't fully understand the ramifications of uploading things online. It was the 2000s. People didn't get that the internet was forever. They just wanted to share more of their lives with their friends. In 2006, Facebook opened up to the world for anyone over 13 years old who had an email address. And what would Facebook know about me? Um, my name's Sean Morrow. What would they, what would, how much does Facebook know about me? I've had it since I was a junior in high school in 2006. Like, how, how much does it know about me? Mm, it knows a lot. Um, it knows... 2006? Okay, so yeah, you're kind of screwed. <laughs> because, you know, it it knows 
all your friends and how they've evolved over time, which also is gonna show how you've evolved over time. They know basically probably every website you've gone to off of Facebook, probably more than your mom, right? Like they probably know more about you than your mom, I think. What is particularly frightening about that statement is that it's not frightening. We already, as a society, understand that Facebook and companies like it are collecting massive troves of data about us all, and we keep using their services anyway. So what exactly are we signing up for? 2006. Facebook has 7 million users and is pulling in $30 million a year in revenue. But they're still not profitable. Investors and executives thought Facebook had peaked. They told Zuckerberg to sell. Yahoo makes an offer, a billion dollars, to buy Facebook outright. And Zuckerberg verbally agrees. But suddenly Yahoo hits financial trouble. And they cut the offer to $800 million. Zuckerberg turned it down. Eventually, Yahoo came back to Facebook with the $1 billion offer again. But by then, Zuckerberg had already convinced investors Yahoo couldn't be trusted. Early Facebook investor and board member Peter Thiel, who, yeah, has his own baggage, recalled that Zuckerberg said, I don't know what I'd do with the money. I'd just start another social networking site. A year later, Jeff Weiner, a Yahoo executive, told Wired that Users of Yahoo Mail are a dormant social network that Yahoo needs to activate, which is the saddest thing I've ever heard. But it still wasn't clear how Facebook would make money, which is what companies are supposed to do, I guess. In 2006, Facebook also signed a deal with Microsoft. The Washington company would run all Facebook advertising through 2011 meaning Microsoft would use their own technology to sell and run ads on Facebook. A 2006 Facebook press release read, advanced technology from Microsoft and Facebook will help connect advertisers with Facebook users in more relevant, innovative ways through a combination of graphical ad placements as well as automated text-based advertisements targeted to content and over time, aggregate user behavior on an anonymous basis. Yeah. Using your information to figure out what to sell you seems like a normal part of life now, but it was new then. Here's Julia Anglin. The the thing that people didn't realize about Facebook and MySpace and the rise of social networking was it was actually the rise of this incredible new targeted advertising system. Targeted advertising. Before, if you wanted to advertise to, say, insecure men, you'd have to buy a full page in Maxim magazine. Now you can just target men who like Dane Cook on Facebook. But it goes deeper. Literally every action you take on Facebook is tracked, counted, massive sets of Excel spreadsheets. They're tracking you in ways you wouldn't even think of and probably couldn't imagine. Sarah Freer, who covers social media and tech for Bloomberg, told me more. Instagram and Facebook, uh, they're part of an advertising-based business. So all of the products are free because the information that you provide as you create connections, as you scroll through, as you hover over certain content, as you give signals with every tap and scroll of what you're interested in, who you are, and what you might like to buy, that information is extremely valuable to advertisers. So advertisers can look at it. Um, they can look at these platforms and say, I want to send this ad for these shoes to women who live in small towns who are married. 
And they can do that via Facebook and Instagram. They can send an ad for a really more narrow things like certain skateboard equipment to people who are into skateboarding. That's the basis for all of these business models. So the incentive is on Facebook and Instagram and, and also Twitter and YouTube to keep you as engaged on their platforms as possible. So the more time you spend there, the more signals you send them about what you're into so that they can target you with relevant advertising. We've all heard the conspiracies about Facebook listening to your phone audio and advertising to you based on your conversations, but they like don't need to do that. They're just generally watching what you do all the time and learning you. You don't need to say potting soil out loud for Facebook to know you're getting into home gardening. Here's Zuckerberg in 08. We have thousands and thousands of advertisers who are just coming to the site and um, putting in their credit card and targeting the exact people that they want to reach and, um, and are having pretty good results with that. In 2007, Facebook launched a new advertising product, Beacon. And that was when people first started to realize something might be up with the website you give all your information to in exchange for brief bursts of serotonin from likes. Beacon was a program that put ostensibly invisible little widgets, one pixel by one pixel, on a variety of websites. If you were logged into Facebook on your web browser, that widget could track everything you do on that website and then report it to your friends. Purchases, service signups, saved recipes. So everyone you know would see just how many tickets to I now pronounce you Chuck and Larry you bought on Fandango.com on their news feeds. There was a large public outcry. Zuckerberg apologized, quote, I'm not proud of the way we handled the situation, and I know we can do better, end quote. And made it so that users had to opt in to Beacon intentionally, rather than be signed up automatically. But cybersecurity researchers at the firm CA found that opting out really doesn't do anything. One investigator said that after opting out, quote, I then checked the network traffic logs and was dismayed to find that in all three cases, data about where I was on a recipe website, what action I had just taken, and what my Facebook account name is, was transmitted to Facebook, end quote. All turning Beacon Off did is stop posting off Facebook activity to your newsfeed. But that activity was still being sent to Facebook, even though the company promised it wasn't storing it. People were focusing on the wrong thing. You didn't need to worry about Facebook broadcasting your internet activity. You needed to worry about them collecting it. The same was true about the newsfeed outcry. People didn't want to see their information, which they'd willingly given to Facebook, broadcast to their friends. But Facebook was collecting their data. Both times Zuckerberg apologized, and both times he said Facebook would do better. In 2007, Facebook sent their head of sales, some guy named Josh, to Washington, D.C., he hosted a workshop where he assembled political consultants, campaign staff, and so on, and pitched Facebook. Quote, our goal is to make you win. Then, an underdog political candidate entered the 2008 Democratic primary. He ran a campaign largely on the internet, investing heavily in building an online community to defeat his establishment opponent, Hillary Clinton, and go on to win the presidency. People called President-elect Barack Obama's victory the Facebook election. President Obama's popularity on Facebook took him through the primaries where his official campaign page had far more followers than Hillary Clinton's, 250,000 to 3,200. 
it was an important campaign tool for mobilizing volunteers and voters. The campaign did buy ads, targeting your audience is even more important when it comes to political advertisement, but spent only $467,000 on Facebook advertising, compared to the millions they spent on Google search advertising or TV ads. But no one calls it the Google election. They call it the Facebook election. Zuckerberg commented on the election at the Digital Life Design Conference a month after Obama's inauguration. So Obama was, I mean, one of the things that was unique about him was he used a lot of different social media tools in order to communicate directly with people, right, very, very democratically, not going through other media, but going directly to people. And, um, and it, he used a lot of different sites, and the one where he had the most connections by far was Facebook. Obama would go on to use Facebook even more effectively in 2012, using new techniques that wouldn't become part of the conversation till Trump's 2016 win. We'll come back to that. Earlier in 2008, there were very different government changes going on, also partially thanks to Facebook. In March, Zuckerberg told a crowd at South by Southwest that within a month of the site launching in Colombia in Spanish, users utilized the platform to, quote, organize and communicate and revolt against the guerrilla armies. The situation in Colombia is way more complicated than that. The uprising wasn't as clean as that. But regardless, Facebook played a part in organizing popular protests. And Mark Zuckerberg knew it. In 2009, the New York Times published a story called Revolution Facebook Style. In Egypt, opposition to President Hosni Mubarak was sparse. The nation was in a years-long state of emergency that Mubarak used to limit protests and free speech. Opposition groups were subject to strict surveillance, with members often jailed. But Mubarak's special police didn't yet have a grip on Facebook. So thousands and thousands of young Egyptians organized there, culminating in the important April 6th, 2009 general strike and protest. Again, I'm hugely oversimplifying here, but the movement resulted in Mubarak's resignation three years later. Facebook, just a few years after its inception in 2004, had become a major force, a necessary middleman in the global trade of ideas. At the time, Facebook was going to connect us all, and social media would enable democratic dissent and free speech and democracy worldwide. Zuckerberg was aware of that great power in 2009 and its potential consequences. He was asked about negative actors like Al-Qaeda recruiting on Facebook at the Digital Life Design Conference. Al-Qaeda or the negative actors are as able to aggregate their activity on Facebook, right? So how do we think about that? Well, I think that the answer to that is really openness and transparency as well, right? I mean, I think, you know, the, the, uh, there are these interesting stories where, um, where you, you hear about people in, in the Middle East who are choosing, you know, that they're, they're in some kind of camp um, that, and they're basically selecting, like, what their future is going to be, right? Whether they're going to go on to, to kind of be um, more extremist or whether they want to become more westernized, right? And, and they're doing this through connecting with folks on Facebook and kind of staying connected with people who are their friends, who are, who are in different parts of the world, and getting a broader understanding of what's going on. So, um, so the, the primary hope would be that just by giving people a, uh, an ability to, to connect more broadly and get a more global perspective of what's going on, that you can stop some of that stuff from happening in the first place. But if that's not possible, then I think at least then having more openness about what people are doing will hopefully be able to to make it so that that stuff doesn't happen on, on the other end. So it sounds like Zuckerberg is suggesting that if you live in some camp in the Middle East, you basically have two options, westernizing or becoming an extremist. And you're making up your mind because of what you're seeing on Facebook. 
But anyway, Zuckerberg is beginning to grapple with the problem of connecting everyone. Everyone means not only democratic organizers, but also extremists of all kinds. In 2010, five years after the founding of Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg, 26, is named Time Magazine's Person of the Year. Facebook has grown immensely, and at the time, unbelievable, 550 million members. The same year, David Fincher, the director of Alien 3, made a movie about Zuckerberg, The Social Network. And Zuckerberg made an interesting appearance on Saturday Night Live. Why can't I go in there? I'm the real Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure at least one of those guys is the real Mark Zuckerberg. No, I am. That guy's like my evil twin, and that's just Andy Samberg. Those guys are such nerds. Come on, I invented poking. Facebook is worth $50 billion. Mark Zuckerberg continued to cultivate his bad boy persona by having a run-in with federal regulators. In 2011, the Federal Trade Commission charged that Facebook deceived consumers by failing to keep privacy promises. Facebook settled charges with the FTC that alleged Facebook breached privacy expectations in a number of ways, giving third-party apps, quote, nearly all of users' personal data. Facebook promised users that it would not share their personal information with advertisers. It did. And further, that, quote, selecting friends only did not prevent users' information from being shared with third-party applications their friends used. Remember, the idea that you got to choose who you shared information with was originally a key part of what attracted people to Facebook in the first place. The Facebook philosophy has always been that people will be able to share more information if they have the ability to share it with exactly who they want, right? So you don't want to share your phone number with everyone in the world, but you do want to share it with 100 people around you, right? So if you aren't able to share it with just those people, then you might not post it at all. But given the ability to share it with just the right people, you'll post it and people will share large amounts of information that, um, that they otherwise wouldn't want to share with everyone. In the settlement between Facebook and the FTC, the federal regulators, Facebook promised to no longer make privacy misrepresentations and that they would actually delete deleted user data after 30 days and submit to regular privacy audits. But Facebook was going mobile, and pretty soon there were going to be far more invasive ways for the company to amass data. Cameras appeared on smartphones, good cameras, and those cameras made it possible for people everywhere to meticulously capture and document their lives on social media. Facebook has a new friend. It has purchased photo sharing app Instagram for a billion dollars. One billion dollars. Not bad for a company that's been around less than two years. In 2012, at just 28 years old, Mark Zuckerberg bought Instagram for one billion dollars. Two years later, at 30, he bought WhatsApp for $19 billion. More after this. Mark Zuckerberg is approaching 30 and buying companies for billions of dollars. Facebook just hit 1 billion users. It's late 2012, and President Barack Obama, who had visited Facebook HQ for a Q&A earlier that year, is about to win re-election. His campaign, by the way, used data farmed from their 2008 campaign app to reach 2012 voters. Facebook had become critically important to the democratic process, or not-so-democratic process globally, depending on where you live. Here's Julia Anglin. The truth is that Facebook has so much power, right? When this amount of power is amassed in in one place, somebody bad tries to grab it, you know, and, and we see that all the time. And we're going to just see more and more of it, right? Because it's too seductive. Um, 
governments are going to want it um, to control it and to run Facebook themselves. Um, authoritarian governments are going to try to control it and also other companies are going to want it. And so in general, like this amount of power in one place doesn't end well. The danger of concentrated power is what so much of who is is about. And it's a concentrated power that there's very little oversight of inside or outside of Facebook. The very structure of Facebook as a company consolidates power in the hands of one guy. And that guy is Mark Zuckerberg. You know, it's interesting because Mark Zuckerberg took a page actually from newspaper publishers. So sort of newspaper barons, billionaires, tycoons who bought their local papers um, and wanted to sort of control the news in their local towns had built this structure of two tiers of stock ownership where they allowed themselves to have super voting shares that gave them more rights than other shareholders. It was a way to keep control. And it was described as like a public interest thing, like that they wouldn't be swayed um, by the public to shape the news. And so it kind of gave them some independence. But honestly, it was just you know a way to keep control of your, your company. And it was interesting to me that Mark borrowed that strategy um, from the media companies and used it for his company while also claiming not to be a media company, right? So he, he, he borrowed exactly their, their structure of a media tycoon and then was like, but no, 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 we're not a media company. We just happen to look exactly like one. <laughs> mm-hmm. And without the responsibilities? Without, and with the added benefit of no liability for what we publish. I mean, it's the perfect company. Like from a you know, the stock market loves them for a reason, right? There's never been profit margins this high. Who's ever been able to publish this much content without having to pay for any of it and having no liability for any of it? It's like the greatest business model of all time. Oh, right. Profit. I forgot about that. Facebook is immensely profitable. I mean, Facebook is more profitable than almost any company has ever been in the history of companies. And so their profits are so insane that it's unprecedented. Um, there's no comparison. The oil companies, you know, used to be the most profitable companies in the world, but they still had to go and put equipment and drill and actually create something, right? These guys sit back, they run a few servers. You and I create the content, writing our little posts to each other. They don't have to take any legal liability for whatever crap we say. And then uh, they sell a bunch of ads targeting our innermost fears <laughs> and they go home at night. And they're like, this is a great job. I mean, couldn't ask for anything more out of a business. In 2015, Mark Zuckerberg's shares are worth $45 billion. He vows that over the course of his life, he'll donate 99% of that to charity. But the way he's doing it says a lot about who Mark Zuckerberg is. Zuckerberg and his wife, Priscilla Chan, launched their charity vehicle, the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, LLC. Those three letters at the end are very important. Limited Liability Company. It's not a foundation or nonprofit or 501c3. It's basically a business, an investment vehicle. That means Zuckerberg and Chan have way fewer regulations in how that money can be spent. It can go to political campaigns and for-profit enterprises. Meanwhile, reporters were uncovering something odd about the 2016 election of WWE Hall of Famer Donald Trump in the United States, and it involved Facebook. One of the things that's interesting about being a tech reporter is that the industry that we cover is not really regulated. So there aren't any federal agencies that are doing oversight or examining or auditing these tech companies. So press coverage 
is particularly investigative work, it's often the only way that issues come to public light that are happening on these tech platforms. You know, press coverage is how we learned about Cambridge Analytica. It's how we learned about the Russian interference in the 2016 election, right? This is right now the best oversight mechanism we have for these tech platforms. Cambridge Analytica. You probably know some of the story already, so I'm going to oversimplify it a bit. Some banal third-party quiz app on Facebook collected the personal data of millions of people and their friends and used it to create detailed profiles on users' political affiliations so that campaigns could more effectively target messages to these voters. They were hired by Ted Cruz, then Ben Carson, and then Donald Trump. Personal data being available to third-party applications your friends interacted with? That's literally just going down the list of things that Facebook in that 2011 settlement told federal regulators, the FTC, it wouldn't do. In 2017, Brad Parscale, Trump's social media manager, went on 60 Minutes. So Facebook now lets you get to places, and places possibly that you would never go with TV ads. Now I could find you know, 15 people in the Florida panhandle that I would never buy a TV commercial for. And we took opportunities that I think the other side didn't. Like what? Well, we had our, their staff embedded inside our offices. What? Yeah. Facebook employees would show up for work every day in our offices. Whoa, wait a minute. Facebook employees showed up at the Trump headquarters? Google employees and Twitter employees. They were embedded in your campaign? I mean, like, they were there multiple days a week, three, four days a week, two days a week, What were they doing week, inside? You helping mean, teach us how to use their platform. Helping you get to, elected? I asked each one of them by email. I want to know every single secret button, click, technology you have. I want to know everything you would tell Hillary's campaign plus some. And I want your people here to teach me how to use it. Facebook also reached out to the Clinton campaign to embed, but Team Clinton wasn't interested. Pascal bragged he could individually target Facebook users with different ads. Quote, they were all targeted to different users of whatever platform. In this case, it was Facebook, sent out to different people. And it could be each other's next-door neighbors, all in Ohio. Individualized messaging, micro-targeted at the neighborhood level, and probably even the household level. Like I said at the beginning of the episode, multiple digital realities, personalized for each of us by algorithms utilizing troves of data about everything we do or have ever done online. If, like me, you've been on Facebook since 2006, Facebook may know more about you than your closest family or friends. In July of this year, independent journalist Judd Legum reported the Trump campaign is spending almost $4 million a week on Facebook ads, which puts them on track to be Facebook's biggest advertiser this year. While America was absorbed by all that, much, much more terrible things were happening abroad. Again, I'm horribly oversimplifying, but the New York Times reported in 2018 that military personnel in Myanmar ran a, quote, systematic campaign on Facebook that stretched back half a decade and that targeted the country's mostly Muslim Rohingya minority group, resulting in genocide and the largest forced human migration in recent history. Zuckerberg, when questioned about this in a congressional hearing, said Facebook would hire a few dozen Burmese-speaking moderators and increase moderation. As people like me and other reporters start to show what kind of things were happening and as events like Myanmar and the genocide or Cambridge Analytica and the 2016 elections happened, people started to realize, oh, there are real downsides to this. And our views about Mark have shifted in that period of time too, because he's the perfect foil. He has no expressions on his face. So 
he's he just sort of receives our you know whatever we want him to be he can be because he looks exactly the same he looks he's wearing the same gray shirt for 20 years and he's not aged at all and he still looks sort of like that guy with a deer in the headlights look and so i think our views about him mirror how we feel about in general living in what is increasingly a techno surveillance state Facebook, in its most utopian, ideal state, could be a place where voices that aren't usually heard are heard and boosted. A place where people can locate each other even if they're geographically distant. A place where groups can build community, maybe community they've never before had. Mark Zuckerberg has the power to change things for the better. So why hasn't he done it already? Mark has said many times, actually, that he would, would welcome government regulation. I do think the thing has gotten a little out of his control and he would actually want someone to set the rules for him. I think he's been pretty explicit about that in a way that's surprising to me. Um, and so I do think that like they are grappling with an existential crisis, which is it is impossible. The task they've set for themselves is impossible. Policing speech on a governed global scale is not a task that anyone could do and certainly no one could do well. Um, and so I think they are hoping in some ways for some constraints from the outside, which is a weird position to be in as a company. Back to Sarah Freer. We need to stop thinking of Mark Zuckerberg as a child. I think that that by calling him a kid, by calling him a wonderkin, we take away that he is one of the most, if not the most powerful people in the world. He sees himself as a world leader and he sees himself as somebody who will be remembered as a great man. In 2018, Zuckerberg went to Washington to testify in front of Congress about the Cambridge Analytica situation, but also really for over a decade of privacy issues and more. He went in incredibly well-prepared and apologized. Facebook is an idealistic and optimistic company. For most of our existence, we focused on all of the good that connecting people can do. And as Facebook has grown, people everywhere have gotten a powerful new tool for staying connected to the people they love, for making their voices heard, and for building communities and businesses. But it's clear now that we didn't do enough to prevent these tools from being used for harm as well. And that goes for fake news, for foreign interference in elections and hate speech, as well as developers and data privacy. We didn't take a broad enough view of our responsibility, and that was a big mistake. And it was my mistake, and I'm sorry. Another apology. He apologized and promised to do better with Newsfeed, which still has the flaws he apologized for in 2007. He apologized for giving data to advertisers and not protecting users from third-party apps. But he never really fixed anything. And people keep coming back. Facebook is not a safe space. You are being watched by Facebook and by advertisers. Don't do anything there that you didn't want to share with two and a half billion people. Because it's just... It's, it's, not a, it's not your space. It's a monetized and monitored space. Remember that FTC ruling from earlier with the audits? Well, in 2019, Facebook failed one of those audits and got a $5 billion fine. A $5 billion fine is nothing to Facebook. It's like an operating cost, like how FedEx accounts for drivers getting parking tickets. So if the government can't hold Facebook accountable, is it up to the users? I mean, I sort of don't have a Facebook profile, but it's a very elite position I can have because I literally write books about privacy. And so I'm like, okay, you know, my my public pers- position is 
I'm so into privacy that I don't have a Facebook profile. But most people can't do that. That's how they talk to their grandma. And that's how they reach out to their old friends from college. And it's basically like, there's no other way to do that. And so we, I, I would argue people aren't making the choice to give up their data. They just don't have another way to do it. I think they would do it in a privacy protecting way if they could do all the same functions. Um, because I think people have woken up to it. I mean, to Cambridge Analytica and the Russian um, disinformation campaign in 2016, I feel like it woke people up to the idea like, oh, this is not just a place to talk to my grandma. This is how I'm being targeted by people who are trying to really manipulate me and particularly to manipulate really vulnerable people. And so I think there's a growing awareness that it's, it is a data extraction and exploitation machine, but it's something that people don't know how to get out of. Remember what Zuckerberg said when Facebook was just a few months old? We're not trying to create something that people use for like a specific purpose. This is a utility that people can use to just find relevant information socially to them. And I, I tried to make something that people could kind of look up extensively just random things about random people and try to get everyone to be on there and a lot of relevant information to be on there. So the fact that people can come back every day for different purposes and kind of keep a browser open on their computer maybe and just go and type in someone's name and find information about them is the type of use that we aimed to tune this application towards. Mark Zuckerberg built something essential, a company very difficult, if not impossible, for people who live digital lives to avoid. Mark Zuckerberg built a network so large and a collection of data so vast that we still don't understand it, even if the data it collects says more about who we are than we know about ourselves. Mark Zuckerberg built an enormously profitable company using the data we gave him to become hugely wealthy himself. Mark Zuckerberg built a for-profit global public square, a platform through which billions of people can communicate and organize to varying degrees of success on all ends of the political spectrum. Mark Zuckerberg built something that could have democratized speech and news, distributing power across its 2.7 billion users. But instead, the power isn't distributed. It's largely in Mark Zuckerberg's hands. Mark Zuckerberg built something huge that touches, in some way, most of humanity. And Mark Zuckerberg is the person who decides what sort of space the social network will be. People get upset with Zuckerberg for something. A data breach, a manipulated election, a genocide. He apologizes, and we all move on and continue using Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, Messenger, all of which Facebook owns, giving Facebook free access to our data and free access to our minds. In 2004, CNBC brought Zuckerberg and some other guy who'd made a dating site for Wesleyan students on for one of Zuckerberg's first ever real TV interviews. When we first launched, we were hoping for, you know, maybe 400, 500 people. Harvard didn't have a Facebook, so that's the gap that we were trying to fill. And now we're at 100,000 people, so who knows where we're going next. Um, we're hoping to have many more universities by fall, hopefully over 100 or 200. And from there, we're going to launch a bunch of side applications, which should keep people coming back to the site and maybe could make something cool. Do you like meat? I like meat. Mark Zuckerberg likes meat. Hey, everyone. We are live from my backyard where I am smoking a brisket and some ribs. 
what are, what are you guys making for dinner? Brisket and ribs, I hope. Delicious. But meat is destroying the world. Next time on Who Is, it's Big Meat and the Meat Industrial Complex. Next week. A sincere thank you to our guests. Julia Angwin, a renowned investigative journalist who has written about tech for the Wall Street Journal, ProPublica, and is now editor-in-chief of The Markup, which she founded. And Sarah Freer, who writes about social media for Bloomberg in San Francisco. She's the author of the excellent new book, No Filter, The Inside Story of Instagram, which was published in April of this year. Who Is is a podcast from Now This. I'm Sean Morrow, senior producer and writer. Michael McDowell is our producer. Kenzie Clark is our associate producer. Editing and mixing by Will Stanton. Production support from Pedro Alvira, Rob Baynard, and Amanda Earle. Ron Flatz is our senior producer. Our executive producers are Nancy Hahn, Brett Kushner, Sarah Frank, and Mangesh Hadakuder. And now this, Tina Exaros is our chief content officer, and Ethan Stephanopoulos is our president. Special thanks to PJ Evans, Matt McDonough, Devin Rogerino, and Elias Acevedo for their excellent work on the original video series of Who Is, which you can find on Facebook and YouTube. Special thanks to Stephen Renderos, Executive Director of Media Justice. Who Is, the podcast, season two, new episodes out every Tuesday. If you like the show, don't forget to rate and subscribe and tell all your friends.